not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm Jean McCarthy. I'm a blogger at Unpickled, the author of the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide. I am the singer-songwriter of that opening music you just heard. And as of June 19th, you will be able to get my book of poetry about recovery called The Ember Ever There. So I spent a lot of time writing and talking about recovery, but here on the Bubble Hour, I hold space and listen as others share their stories of change and hope. And today's guest is here to celebrate two very special milestones. She is sharing her story as a part of that celebration. So meet my friend, Margaret, and enjoy her story. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. It's like, I still can't believe I'm on the bubble hour. It's blowing my mind. It's crazy. (laughs) I have definitely listened to every episode and every time I hear your voice, it just is so soothing. It just puts me in such a state of calm just because like those first few months, I mean, you were, you were the voice in my ear nonstop. I just think that's so cool because we have met. Sometimes when I meet people for the first time, it takes them a while to get used to my voice coming out of my face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do remember the first time we met when I saw you and I wasn't expecting to see you at that moment. I literally got so starstruck and I got tongue tied. And I'm like, she must think I'm the biggest idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely did not think that. (laughs) Well, you listen to somebody for so long and then you see them in person and you're right. It's like putting the face to the the voice, it, it takes you a second to get used to it. But then we became best friends. Yes, immediately. And <laughs> uh, and it's funny how that happens because we have this this heart imprint. I mean, it it just it's just so, it's such a fast friendship with other people that are walking the walk because we understand something immediate about each other that the rest of the world just doesn't quite register. I think. Totally. Yeah. There's no small talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, which is so I, nice. I know exactly, and a little exhausting. Like we all sleep, we all sleep like the dead at night because we've just been like blah 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 all day about the really oh, good stuff. Well, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that, but yeah. I mean, I don't know if you know. Yeah, my sleeping it's the one thing that yeah I've not. Everyone talked about how wonderful their sleep was going to be when you got sober. And it's just that one thing that has not clicked with me, but I'm still hopeful. Eventually it'll happen. That's right. Because I remember you telling me about these fantastic sleep ear pods that you have yeah. that play ocean sounds and crickets or whatever, right? You can. Oh, they're different- amazing. They are amazing. And, oh, if anybody wants to know about them, they're the only thing that I've allowed. And you would think that now I would sleep soundly, But it has eliminated my husband's snoring, which is a big plus because I tried everything on the market to to eliminate that sound. And these work. These work. So if anybody has a snoring spouse that they need help with, just just reach out to me. (laughs) (laughs) We'll solve that problem for you. So you're not asleep, but you're at least not mad at your husband while you're laying there awake. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't want to reach over and put a pillow over his head for that reason. (laughs) Maybe other reasons, but not that one. 
<laughs> so we are celebrating a couple of really special milestones with your interview today. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I, the reason I had reached out to you a few months ago, I was counting, I'm a big day counter and I knew I was coming up on a thousand days alcohol free. And then I, when I was trying to count that in my head, I realized that my birthday, which I, I was turning 50, I knew that they were going to be on the same day. And then I actually did the counting and they were two days apart or three days apart. So I, I reached the milestone of a thousand days alcohol free on Sunday. And now today is my 50th birthday, which I just think is super cool that those two, because I don't know which one is more exciting. I mean, I might say the thousand day one, but turning 50 is pretty cool too. So the fact that they're close together, I said, I have to celebrate this in some special way. And this was the, the way I, I decided. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this double milestone with, with all of the listeners and with me, because I just, I can't think of a better way to celebrate than to, than to share and connect. I think it's amazing, especially during this time where it's a little hard to do that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in our usual ways. <laughs> so true. Well, let's hear your story. Let's get to know you. Tell us about how your thousand days of sobriety came to be. So it's when I was thinking about my story for coming on the podcast, I realized I've actually never, ever in one sitting told anyone my entire story, which 50 years, I mean, to, to you know, try to wiggle that down to one hour is kind of difficult. But I, I've told parts of it to people, but never in one sitting. So I'm going to try and do the best I can. It might, you know, I don't know how it's going to come out, but I'll do my best. Um, so as you, as you just said, I'm 50 years old. Um, I live in the Northwest corner of Connecticut with my husband. Um, we've been married 27 years in a couple of weeks. Um, we have four kids. My son, Billy is my oldest. He lives in Los Angeles. Um, my daughter, Kat, she's getting married in four weeks and then she'll be moving uh, down to South Carolina where she's going to be teaching first grade. My son, Jack, is in college in Florida, although he's been home now since April, since uh, it went online. Um, and then my youngest daughter is going to be a sophomore in high school next year. Um, so I grew up in a great family. I was the youngest of six kids. My father, he was an electrical engineer. My mom stayed home with us until I was in high school. Um, she then went back to school. She ended up actually receiving a double master's degree from Yale in nursing and epidemiology. So education was always something that was really important in my family. It was never like blatantly said, but it was just always something that was em emphasized. It was just always assumed I would go to college. Um, and I don't ever remember my parents drinking. They didn't really socialize much. Uh, they loved gardening. We were always outside. We always had lots and lots of animals. We had pigs. We had chickens. Um, even when we at one point lived in in Colorado Springs and we lived in a, a tiny little neighborhood and we had turkeys and chickens in the backyard and now I'm thinking back and I mean the neighbors must have thought we were just totally crazy but we always had dogs we had guinea pigs um, so it was really a great childhood um, looking back I had I, I don't have any really bad memories I loved I loved everything um, I was born in Scotland. My dad was a professor over there. My mom had my, this is where I think I get it from. She was, she loved traveling and had that bug. And so we moved around a lot. 
um, I was born in Scotland. Then we moved to England a few years later and lived there for a couple of years before moving back to the United States when I was five. Um, and then after that, we moved every couple of years. We moved to New York. Um, we moved to Colorado, like I said. And then we finally settled in Connecticut when I was in the third grade. And looking back, I can tell that that's when I first remember feeling anxious. I remember that first day of school in third grade and the teacher saying that we were going to get in trouble um, if we kept talking and that we weren't going to be able to go out for recess. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, please keep talking. I do not want to go out for recess because I knew that I didn't know anyone. And that feeling, that anxious feeling, uh, that's where it started. And this feeling of not fitting in and just wanting to be included so desperately, that's, I think, where that started, too. And ever since then, now I've been battling that feeling of wanting to be included and wanting to be seen and then not wanting to stand out too much. And it's just been this recurring theme in my life, this fear of like being too much and wanting to be seen and then disappear simultaneously. So then middle school was very awkward time for me. Uh, I wish I could show you a picture of Margaret, 12-year-old Margaret. I was super tall. I had white, white hair. I had braces. My hair was so white that my nickname was Casper, the friendly ghost, which, you know, was not a really great nickname. And to make it worse, I remember my sister uh, decided to give me a haircut. I'd had really long hair. And one weekend she decided that she wanted to test out her haircutting skills. And she tried giving me, if you remember Dorothy Hamill, she tried giving me a Dorothy Hamill haircut, but like with layers. And if you have like thin white hair with that haircut, it made me look like I was totally bald. It, it was not a good look. So that was a really, really uh, hard time. And I wasn't super athletic or super smart. I didn't like fit in with any particular group. I mean, although I say that, but I didn't know if I was or not. But, you know, at that time, it's either you are or you aren't. It's like this, you know, there's really no in between. So those beliefs from back then, though, I think they've carried with me, you know, these stories we tell ourselves at a young age, it's so important. Like I try not to do with that with my kids now because these labels, they, they carry with you for a long time. Like up until um, I started running, which I'll get into, I, I kept that thinking that I'm not athletic and I, you know, I had for a long time this imposter syndrome that even though, you know, I was running marathons that, you know, oh, you're just really not a runner yet. And it, it comes from that 12-year-old girl on the basketball court shooting a basket and for the other team and, you know, getting ridiculed for it. So that was my middle school years. Um, drinking started probably, I would think, around my freshman year of high school. I didn't drink a lot, but... Um, like a lot of people I've said before on this show, I mean, it, it allowed me to socialize. I hated the taste of beer, but I remember before high school dances, I would sneak. I don't even know where I got the beer from because my parents didn't drink. Um, but I would sneak a couple of beers like into a backpack and, and drink them before the dance just to feel more comfortable. At least that's what I thought, you know, that it would make me feel more comfortable. Um, I loved wine coolers, though, when I... I was introduced to wine coolers, particularly I remember the brand Bartles and James and it, they were so sweet and I love the taste of those. So I would, I would just drink those down. Um, the high school and college were pretty crazy. I went to three different high schools, three different colleges. Uh, my junior year of high school, I was an exchange student in Quebec. 
I lived in this tiny little town and on the weekends, everyone drank. So I just joined right in. And when I came back home the next year, I had gone to a small girls uh, Catholic school near my house and that ended up closing the year I was in Quebec. So I went straight to college and looking back, I mean, three high schools, three colleges, I never was anywhere long enough to really feel like I fit in. And that's carried, you know, on too, um, with that feeling of, you know, not being included and not fitting in. And I think that, that, you know, all stems back from that childhood, not staying in any one place and, you know, having any roots. And in hindsight too, I never should have gone away to college. I mean, I was 17, just turned 17. I was way too young. I had absolutely zero coping skills. I had no idea what I really wanted to do. I read somewhere that your emotional growth or maturity stops when you begin drinking. That was absolutely true for me. Um, I thought I was super independent by like going away and living in Quebec, you know, on my own. Although I wasn't on my own. I was with a host family. But in reality, I was super lonely. And because of that, that first year of um, college, I, I drank a lot. And I got myself into a lot of situations that looking back were really extremely risky and I'm, I'm really lucky that, um, that nothing really super scary happened to me. Um, at the end of the, my first year of college, I ended up getting a DUI, which, hello, red flag. <laughs> I'd been at my sister's college um, drinking, decided to get into a car, drive to an ex-boyfriend's house, because that's what you do when you drink. And I stopped at a convenience store to ask for directions, and I must have looked like a mess. I had no shoes on. Luckily, there were two policemen who saw me and saw the shape I was in and followed me out to my car and told me that if uh, I started the car, I'd be arrested. So they brought me back in, bought me a coffee, and I stayed there for a while. And then I thought they left, so I went back outside and started my car. And of course, they, they hadn't left. They were you know around the corner. And when I started my car, they, they arrested me. I was completely humiliated. I thought my parents would never forgive me. At the time, I was willing to do or say anything, you know, just just to get out of this situation. So I ended up going to AA for probably five or six months, and I ended up doing my, my sophomore year of college at a community college nearby, and I lived at home for that year. And that AA, it was not a good experience. Um, looking back now, it was probably because I wasn't in the right meeting. Um, I was in a, a co-ed meeting. And it, it really wasn't a good situation. There were a lot of older men who were hitting on me. Um, and also, I didn't really think I had a problem. Like, I really didn't have any intention of ever stopping drinking. I was just doing it because I thought that this is what I had to do to get my parents, you know, to to forgive me or to make it appear like, you know, like I, like I wasn't going to get into the situa situation again. I also, at the time, my mom had me um, go to a therapist for the first time. And even going to the therapist, I remember thinking ahead of time, what am I going to talk about with this therapist? Like thinking out so that the therapist would think that, you know, I was great. Instead of actually taking that time to, you know, figure out what was what was going on and why I was drinking. I ended up going away my junior year of college, and right when I went away, I started I started drinking again. And those two years away at college were just, I mean, one big drink fest. And it's actually one of my, not that I regret things because, you know, I am where I am because of what happened. But when I see my, my own kids and their experiences in college and the fact that I was so privileged to be able to go away, 
that I didn't take advantage of, you know, everything I could have, it's, it's definitely, definitely a hard thing to look back on. Um, but I did get good grades somehow. And after I graduated, I moved home, began working at a law firm because again, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no idea how to be an adult. I had no coping skills. And so I had taken a couple of law classes in college and I had really actually enjoyed them. So that's, I was either going to go to law school or I was going to be a flight attendant. Those were my two, two options because I love to travel. So I ended up though going to law school route. Um, when I was working at the law firm before I went to law school, that's where I met my husband. He had just graduated from law school and started working there. And we started dating, um, at the end of my first year of law school, we ended up getting married. And once, once I began dating my husband and we got married, I drinking really became a non-issue. I mean, he didn't really drink. Um, we both wanted a family. So at the end of my third year of law school, I ended up giving birth to my, my oldest son. And this was like what I remember as like the golden years. I mean, life was so good. There was the occasional night out where I would drink too much, but for the most part, drinking really wasn't a part of my life. I loved being a mom. I loved everything about it. I loved planning our days. I loved creating a home. I was really determined to have my kids know only one home and have memories and longtime friends because that's something that I didn't have. So I really wanted to give that to them. And so drinking really was a non-issue. And I think also because my kids gave me that... <clears throat> gave me that love and attention that I had always wanted. And it was unconditional. Like I knew that they didn't want anything in return except my love. And I think that's what I really, really needed. So it filled that hole. So I, drinking was really not, not an issue at that point. Um, it didn't enter the picture again until my kids started getting older. And right at that time, three things happened that I think um, really push my drinking to the next level. One, the first one, my friend introduced me to uh, wine, Chardonnay in particular. I only ever drank Chardonnay. And up until that point, I'd been a beer drinker. Um, that was the only thing I drank. Um, and like I said, it, it, it really wasn't, hadn't an issue. Um, and then when I was introduced to wine, it was just, it was just love at first sight. I, I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And then we went from bottle wine and I was introduced to a box wine, which was even like next level. Um, the second thing that happened was my husband became extremely sick and doctors couldn't f find out what was wrong. They eventually diagnosed him with um, colitis and he ended up needing to have surgery and having his colon removed. Um, and at the same time, my mother was diagnosed with a rare form of uterine cancer and within four months passed away. So those three things, I think, were like, the, like I said, the trifecta that pushed my drinking to um, to the next level. But even then, I, I was not drinking nightly. It was. But when I did drink, it was it was never a class. It was it was always, you know, in excess. Um, those through three events yeah, had a huge impact on my drinking, but it had been gradually. And when I look back, I can't, I can't tell or understand when I turned the corner and I suddenly found like I was thinking in, of drinking all the time, but the next seven years, that's what I did. I, 
I was thinking about drinking all the time. And by this, I mean, I'd stopped drinking for a while. I'm a runner and I started running when my kids um, were little. I bought a, a treadmill so I could run while they were napping. And when my husband was diagnosed with colitis, I started running for an organization where I would raise money. So I was running marathons. I would use that as an excuse that I was training for a race. So I had to stop drinking for a while um, and it would work, but inevitably I'd start up again. I'd moderate for a while. It would escalate again. I'd stop again. And nobody ever said anything to me about my drinking. The only two people that had ever said anything to me were, were my mom right before she died. She had voice her concerns to me. And she had said, Margaret, you know, you're drinking. I'm just, I, I just really am concerned. And of course I looked at her and I said, mom, I'm a runner. I'm an athlete. Like I know I'm, I, you know, I don't have an issue. And the next person was my oldest daughter when she was a junior in high school. She had pulled me aside and said that, that when I drank, it was really embarrassing to her. And that had a huge impact on me. And after she said that, we got into an argument and I stopped for about six months before I started up again. And I think ultimately, even though I look at that, you know, her saying that it was, it's part of my journey. I finally had to do it for myself. I think it's great if at the beginning, like you stop for your kids, but I think ultimately you really have to do it for yourself. Um, and I knew that, but I just didn't know how to. I didn't know anyone modeling, you know, what sobriety looked like. All I had ever known was AA, and I knew that wasn't going to be right for me. I didn't see that label of an alcoholic and attaching it to myself. So I really struggled for years. I mean, probably 10 years I struggled alone with that Groundhog's Day of stopping and starting and stopping and starting and the self-loathing just getting worse and worse. And I remember there was a restaurant we used to go to, um, and when you would go into the bathroom, there's a mirror, so you see yourself. And I remember towards the end, not even wanting to go into the bathroom, but if I did, I wouldn't even look in the mirror. And that's how horrible I had gotten, like how much I hated this thing that everything else in my life I could do. I mean, anything I set my mind to, I could do. And I, I excelled in law school. I you know, did marathons. I always committed. And this is the one thing that I just couldn't do. Um, then one day I finally stumbled on a Facebook group for triathlons that I belonged to because I had decided that I was going to do an Ironman and that this, you know, this would be the key that would get my drinking under control. I mean, because if a marathon couldn't do it, then obviously I had to do a triathlon uh, and not just a triathlon, an Ironman. Um, so this Facebook post, it was from a woman who was, who was questioning her drinking habits. And most of the responses she was getting um, were joking with her, like train hard, play hard. But there was one woman that responded that said that she had a drinking problem. And, um, and she gave a link to a blog that she wrote. And that, that one post changed everything for me. Um, her blog, she told her story. And it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone telling my story. And it literally blew my mind that there were other people out there that were experiencing the same exact thing I was. And she had a Facebook group for triathletes that were trying or had stopped drinking. And that became my lifeline. I connected with some of the women in that group. And it was that connection that I really believe changed everything for me and got me through that first year. One person in particular who had about the same date um, as me, we became accountability partners and really checked in with each other every once in a while. Um, 
And then that group, joining that group, led me to another online group, which led me to podcasts and your podcasts and blogs. And it was like this this sudden, this whole world opened up to me that I had never knew existed before. Um, and it was life-changing. And that's how I've gotten to where I am now. So it was connection. That it was totally was connection. Different. Yeah. Was it well, hard when things quit? Like, was let me it- just say, it was connection, but I think also it's important to say, Jean, that it was also the right time. Like, and I think it's important that people, you know, you can't, if I don't know if I had found that maybe earlier, five, 10 years earlier, if it would have had the same result because I wouldn't have been ready. You know, it, I think it does take those seven, you know, however long it took me to get to the point where I was finally like, you know, enough is enough. And then it was just, you know, all the blood everything falling into place, you know, finding that group was key, but also I was ready. I think, you know, there's a, um, one of my favorite quotes, it says, oh, I'm going to probably going to mess it up now. But when the fear of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of change, that's when the change happens. And I was yeah. so scared of just staying, you know, staying in the, staying the same. I was so scared, but also the, I didn't know how, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it on my own, you know, and that's where, you know, finding all these other things and the connection. Yeah, they were definitely key. You mentioned losing your mom. How has sobriety affected your ability to process that grief or to make peace with that loss? Has that sort of peeled back another layer on your healing with regards to your mom's passing? Mm. That's a good question. Um, it's interesting because I think I, I told you this story. My father had passed away about 10 years before my mom, and I was pregnant with my third son at the time. So I, I was able to process, you know, losing him a lot easier than than losing my mom, you know. And it's been, yeah, I, I think, you know, with everything, it takes time. And in sobriety, you get that time and you get that clarity to do that. And it is, it's, it's layers, it's peeling back layers. And, um, I hope she would be proud of me. That's like my one thing. I, I hope, I hope that she sees what I'm doing now and, you know, my kids and, and I, I know she probably is, but that's the one thing I, I, I do hope is that, I mean, loss is hard. I think, I think grief is, I don't know if you ever get over it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's I definitely it, layers of it though, you know, but it, it yeah. comes up. But now the difference is I really can, when I feel sad, I just let myself feel sad. You know, yeah. like I miss my mom. Like I miss my mom for my daughter's getting married next next month. And I, I miss that my parents are not going to be there to, to see it. And it's sad. But I let myself feel that sadness now. You say that you were able to process your dad's losing your dad easy or more efficiently, I guess. So you were able yeah, to process yeah. emotion. Do you mean because you weren't drinking because you were pregnant? Oh yeah, definitely. So you had that clarity. And then when your mom passed, you were, you know, you were drinking yeah. and your, your emotions weren't, weren't passing through the way because, that they, yeah. Yeah. I remember when my dad passed, I mean, I, I, I remember that feeling of that deep grief, like just sobbing, so, like uncontrollable sobbing and, and just like a, a pain in my chest, like my, my father, I mean, my, I was close, very close with both my parents, but my father, oh, it, yeah, it just was this 
deep pain. And when my mom passed, yeah, I felt it, but, but I drank, I mean, I drank. So I, I numbed out, you know, and I, and it was also at the time, like I said, where my, my husband was extremely sick and hospitalized for a period of time. And we have a small law practice and we didn't want anyone to know he was really sick. So I had to put on this facade and have this appearance, like everything was fine, you know? And so, and I didn't want the kids to freak out. So I had to put on this, like, you know, this really brave front when inside I really felt like scared to death, you know? And then, so I drank. Yeah. And I was never a day drinker, you know, and I, and that's why I, I really hate when people always ask me, well, how much were you drinking? And I hate to even like say how much, because I don't think you can compare. And if people are asking because they want to judge how much they're drinking and seeing if they have a problem. And I always tell them, you know, it's not about the amount because maybe I was drinking a bottle a night and that, that was an issue for me. You know, it was making me feel like crap. It was interfering with how I, you know, process emotions. And it was the reason why I was using it. You know, it wasn't because I just wanted to have a good time. I mean, I was using it because that was my only coping skill I knew. And so maybe somebody else can have, you know, a couple glasses of wine every night and they're totally fine because they're using it for a different reason. But let me make it clear. I did never, I never wanted just a couple of glasses of wine. In fact, I could, and there was many nights when I just had, you know, one or two glasses or none at all. But those nights I would actually leave feeling more anxious and angry than if I hadn't had any or, you know, because that, that's not what I wanted. I didn't, I didn't want just, you know, a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. That wasn't my Mm -hmm. purpose in drinking. My purpose in drinking was to drink the whole darn bottle, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to push the button. You're trying, always trying to push the button. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That off switch, you know, flick that off switch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean about the resisting comparison because it is absolutely irrelevant absolutely irrelevant how much we drank, especially when you are comparing because, you know, there's, first of all, women versus men, I mean, our bodies metabolize alcohol so differently. But there's also just the, the whole cycle. I mean, it doesn't really matter how much w- once you're in that cycle. Yeah. Um, you know, there's like, no one's keeping score. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. There, there's no, um, well, anyway, that, that's, all, well, that's and a it's whole truly true that, yeah, and that's a whole other topic, but it, it didn't matter either. I mean, at least for me, how much I drank, because I was thinking about it no matter what, I mean, it was, it got, it was taking up so much headspace. And I think that's a hard thing too. Why? Like I, my life looked great. Like nobody, I, nobody really thought I had a problem because they weren't inside my head. They just were yeah. seeing the, the outward appearance, but I mean, I woke up and I would tell myself, okay, you're not going to drink today, Margaret. I mean, and we've heard this story over and over, you know, you're not going to drink. You feel like shit. Just push yourself, go out, you know, go for a run. I would put on such a facade of, of how I was feeling. And then gosh, darn it, you know, three o'clock would come and I'd be like, see, you're fine. You're good. Look at how much you did today. Like, what is the big deal? Like, mm-hmm. and my husband would call and want me to pick anything up. Yeah, sure. Grab a bottle of wine. And I was like, what the heck happened between 9am and four o'clock? And you know, it's the brain, your brain, <laughs> your brain, your brain plays tricks on you once you're, you're addicted to that substance. It just does. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, the fact that, you know, 
by the afternoon, you're you're starting to go into withdrawal. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so fact. Yeah. And I mean, that was something I, I never understood. I mean, my anxiety, after my mom passed away, I had a period of time where my, I had my first ever panic attack while driving my kids to school and it, it just freaked me out. I think I knew what it was, but I didn't really, but then I started having like all these other crazy symptoms and in, looking back, it was anxiety. I mean, anxiety was everything, but I went to every single doctor, you know, saying there is something seriously wrong with me. I'm like, look at my hands are shaking. I have headaches. And it was now I'm like, that was probably like, I was in withdrawal. Like those days were like, those are all symptoms of withdrawal. And oddly enough, like I'd have a glass of wine and those things would go away. And like, for I, I consider myself a pretty smart person, but man, I did not make that connection. At all. Did any doctors make that connection no. or suggest And it? let me tell you, I also was very, I was very honest with a couple of doctors. Um, I went to a cardiologist because I, my, I would have the racing heart in the middle of the night. And so I have, um, I have a heart murmur. So I'm like, oh God, there's probably something wrong with my heart. So I went to a cardiologist and had all the tests done. And I told him, I said, listen, could this be because I'm drinking, you know, a cup, a bottle of wine a night, you know? Absolutely not, he said. He said, for you to have physical symptoms from alcohol, you would have to be drinking, like, I forget what he said, of hard liquor, like, you know, a, I don't even know what they call it, you know, of like, and I was like, oh, no, I'm just drinking a, you know, bottle of wine. He's like, you're no, that's absolutely fine. And then I also, uh. ta- I also <laughs> talked to my, uh, a female, um, you know, my general, my general doctor, because I, she had me go for um, a CAT scan and I mean, she, she had blood tests done for my bruising and everything. And I said to her, could this be because I'm drinking? And I, I was very honest and absolutely not. Cause that for a point I said, maybe I'm allergic to Chardonnay. Like maybe there's something in it that is, is making me, you know, I have, I swear to God, like it's crazy to think about this now. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. But so I was like, I was very honest with, with the doctors, you know, and it wasn't my, um, my gynecologist was the only one who ever said, you know what, she diagnosed the anxiety. And she said, you're, you're, you've got a lot going on. You've got anxiety. She was the only one who, but you know, said anything to me about even what the possible reason for all these, you know, things were. So I have to wonder, like, are our doctors so stressed out and are they in denial of their own relationships with alcohol? Is that why we hear stories like this of women telling their doctors that they are drinking far too much alcohol, far beyond the safe guidelines of alcohol in in the high risk category? If you're drinking a bottle of wine a night, you are in the high, high risk category. And doctors need to know that. Do they not know it? Are they in denial? I don't know. Listeners, if you're in the medical profession and you have answers for me, I honestly would really like to understand this and explore it. So please do <laughs> write in and tell me. It's a it's an amazing question to me because, you know, that doctor has sworn an oath to do no harm. So I have to assume that they don't know better to not raise a red flag when you tell them that you're drinking a bottle of wine at night. Well, I think it's a couple of things. And it's funny, my um, daughter's fiance is in medical school right now. And so I, I have a lot of conversations with him about this. And they're not being taught. They're not being taught, you know, anything about addiction. I think maybe he had one 
like one day, you know, like a 12 hour, I don't even know, but they, they're not being taught, you know, addiction and the, the consequences. I mean, I think that's a big thing. Also, I think that it's just part of society. We are so programmed as a society and I think it infiltrates every sector of our society. So even the medical profession where, you know, it's, it's absolutely normal to drink alcohol in this way. I mean, it's all around us. I mean, so I think it's, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, the fact that it mm-hmm. is so socially acceptable to drink in excess, you know, I think yes. just like brain, <laughs> you know, people, people just don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about you sharing your story and just the exercise of, of prepping for this show by writing out your story. Did you have any aha moments as you did that and went through that exercise? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I'm usually not a speaker. I'm a much better writer. Like in that over these past couple of years, I've, that's how I process my thoughts through writing. Um, so early on, I did start a blog and start, start writing and that, that's really been helpful to process a lot of thoughts. And I've had a lot of aha moments um, from that, that process of writing. I think one of the, my biggest things I've learned is that you're going to be uncomfortable, like, and it's okay. Like, there's no way you're going to go into this process of getting, you know, sober and not be uncomfortable. And I remember like those first couple of moments, like when you start feeling it and thinking like, holy crap, how am I going to get through this? But you do. And then when you do, you're like, oh, this is what it's meant to like experience, you know, this feeling or that feeling. And it's such an aha moment because like literally I hadn't ever experienced, I don't, I I literally could not remember the last time I had experienced a true emotion, you know, because every single emotion I had used as an excuse to drink alcohol, you know, like we celebrate, we, we mourn everything. There's always alcohol. So I didn't understand what it meant to be, you know, to feel, to truly feel. Um, and that, that, that just coming to that realization that, you know what, it's life. There's going to be uncomfortable moments, but you know, what? on the other flip side of that, there's going to be such incredible moments. I have had some moments running where literally I've had to stop and just, I just burst into tears because it's such a powerful feeling when you're out running in nature and you just feel so good. You feel so freaking good. And you know, I never felt that before. Not that every time running is good. There's many days when I don't feel good running, but that one, you know, once in a while moment when you can truly experience like joy, it takes your breath away. It literally takes your breath away. And on the flip side, yeah, I've experienced some super horrible, uncomfortable feelings and, and you get through those too, though, you know, and I found when you get through those, it makes, you know, like, like having uncomfortable conversations, you know, with people, when you get through those, it makes those relationships so much stronger. I think when you actually can be honest and, and truthful and vulnerable with people, you know, people appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, and, then, you know, they aren't meant to be in your life. That's how I feel. Yeah, exactly. It also, I was going to say that it, it can also illuminate for us the, the relationships that might not be yeah. worth investing in. That's another aha moment I had. I actually know what I, what I like to do now. 
I don't think like literally looking back from when I was 16, I think every, even, you know, I went to law school. I mean, I loved, I like education. I love the process of going to law school. To be honest, I don't like to be a lawyer. I don't like lawyering. Like my husband is great. It's, he is, it's his passion. Not so much with me. And I'm like, damn, I even did that. Like to please somebody else or to, or to prove someone. Or I always, I, I, the big thing I struggled with, and you know, to be honest, I still struggle with it at times is I'm worthy, you know, just because of me. Whereas I've always attached, you know, I'm my value to, you know, because I'm a lawyer or, you know, something external. And it's really hard to break those old habits that, you know what? No, I'm, I'm worthy just because I'm me. And especially, right. you know, being a stay-at-home mom, I, I, that was a huge thing I struggled with because, you know, I wasn't the, the main breadwinner. And so I always felt, you know, that I had to, to make a point of saying, no, no, I'm a lawyer too. You know, when, you know, I, I am so proud of the fact that my kids had a mom at home with them and I, I was a good mom, you know, even with the drinking, I think I was a really great mom. It's, it's my greatest accomplishment, you know, that I have these four amazing kids that are turning into these wonderful, you know, humans. I just love them to death. <laughs> Aww. And you, you say that even as they're all under your roof right now due to <laughs> the pandemic <laughs> with one bathroom. <laughs> I love that. Oh, yeah. I love it. oh, man. I also want to ask you about the first time you shared in a, in a group. So you, you went to... Um, AA in college. So you were, you know, you've been to meetings and seen what sharing is like and participated in that at that level. Was it different when you came to recovery later in life and, you know, went to a group and was in a sharing circle for the first time and had that real feeling of being really connected to people? What was that like for you? Yeah, totally. hundred percent. Um, I think all two things there. I mean, I was ready. I was ready to share vulnerable, you know, uh, vulnerable, <laughs> um, you know, so I was, <clears throat> I was at the point where I was ready to be honest and in a group, um, of women, it was in a space where I knew it was, you know, going to be safe. Um, yeah, but it was still hard. I got to admit it was still hard. I think I've gotten better over time. You know, the more I think you, you can open up and be honest, it, it gets easier. But it was it was still difficult, but it was a lot more cathartic than before because it was, you know, sharing from, from what I really felt instead of something that, um, you know, these internal monologues that I felt like I had to say, which is a big difference, you know. You know, the, the first five or more times I shared in a group I could not I cried I couldn't I couldn't oh, yeah. hardly talk because I just had not taken the lid off that garbage can for so long and it was overwhelming and I didn't expect that but I also felt like you say I felt safe to allow it and um I didn't feel judged and I didn't feel that there was I didn't need to do anything but just be real in that moment and feel that. But I, I felt a little embarrassed of it afterwards because it's so out of character for me to be yeah. just 
oh, like so overwhelmed by my emotions that I can't even communicate. I mean, I'm a talker. I can talk all day long, as you know. <laughs> so for my emotions to wipe out my words, you know, was it was quite surprising to me. But it's amazing the power of letting it go when you've so valued hanging on and keeping it under control. Well, it's funny you talk about that because I remember at the, the last retreat we were at, there was an older woman that was there too. And we had had, I don't know if it, we had had a sharing circle or it was after, and I was sitting next to her and everyone was leaving and we just started talking and it felt as if my mother was in front of me and those you know, it's like a layer, like, like I did not expect my emotions to be overcome, but she was acting as a mother to me. And it just, the floodgates, when I mean they opened and it was so unexpected and it just felt so good. It like was like, you, you're, I didn't even realize I'd been holding on to so much um, grief. And then to somebody talk to me, like in a motherly way, just let that out. And it just, man, it felt so good. But totally unexpected, you know, but afterwards it's like when you can share, yeah, like that, it's just such relief, such relief. We hold so much in, you know, we hold so much mm -hmm. in and to and me you intuited that, that, that the person that was in front of you was a safe person to do that with. She wasn't at mm -hmm. all taken aback by your emotion. She was honored by it. I think oh. I, I think I know this. <laughs> oh my God. She, she's just, she's like, amazing. She's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So we can trust our gut too, that, you know, if, if that happens, it's, it could be because we're detecting that we're with someone who can, who can hold that space for us and, and who can um, participate in that, um, that release with us. And how did that feel afterwards? Did you have a, a vulnerability hangover after that? Or did you just feel... Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't at all. I was so grateful. I was so grateful that she was there because I literally did not realize that I, that's what I needed. You know, I, I did not, it was a great feeling. Yeah. And I think that's the difference too, between drinking and non-drinking, like the emotions I have now that come out now, when I cry, it feels good. Like I don't cry that often, but I, when I do, it's, it's, it's necessary. It's obviously necessary and it feels good. Whereas my kids used to say, um, mom, when you were drinking, like you, you were emotional. So obviously like that alcohol brought out this, that I was holding on to stuff. But when I would cry after drinking, it would just leave me drained. Like it would, it was not, it didn't feel good. Like I wasn't releasing anything. Mm -hmm. Um, but now when I, when I actually cry, it's for a reason. And it, it, it's clearing space, you know, that needs to be cleared. And I'm able to do that now, which I think before, yeah, when you're drinking, you can't clear that space. It just builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up, you know, and I find that now too, that it's really important. Like when I, to speak out loud about something is really helpful. I just recently, it's all layers, right? I mean, and the more you progress in your sobriety, you're, you peel back, you know, more and more layers. Like right now where I'm at, at a thousand, you know, almost three years, it's not really about the drinking anymore for me. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm rarely triggered. I don't really think about it at all that much anymore. Um, but what I'm finding is that there's these other issues that, that I haven't really addressed, you know, and I'm like, okay, maybe I didn't because I wasn't ready. And now I'm ready to anxiety, 
is is a huge one that actually just came up during this pandemic. And I was noticing, you know, some habits that that I've been doing and they're reoccurring and, you know, where I like want to go forward and I want to do something, but then I get scared and I let that anxiety take over. So I take two steps back and I'm like, you know what? I'm done with that. Like I'm done. That's like the old me and, and I'm beyond that now. So this is something I have to address. So I finally at, at a meeting, you know, an online meeting that, um, that is taking place on zoom now with, with one of our groups, I finally, you know, vocalized and and spoke about it. And it was, again, it was so helpful, like just giving, letting it be, get out of my body, you know, cause I can write about it, but there's something about putting, letting others, you know, hold that space for you and hear it. That is just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a game changer. It really is. And I mean, once I got that out, I'm like, okay, now I can actually like move forward. And it's, yeah, I'm still going to have anxiety. I still do. But I know for me, like I, I have to address it. I can't just hide mm-hmm. it, hide it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's that old vestige of like, if I, if I say it to people, then I feel more accountable for it. Yes. Um, yes. As, as much as we're learning to value our own opinions and know that, you know, well, if we know it still matters, <laughs> even if we don't tell anybody else, but, but there is oh. really something about that makes it, um, come into existence when we share it with people and when someone circles back and they're like, Hey, how's that project you were talking about? And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of a, it, it, it is almost the next step in bringing something to life. Well, for years, for years with my drinking, I had been like that. I have a, I have a sister-in-law and she, she's, she's like a sister to me. I mean, she, she has never drank. She's the kindest, sweetest person you'll ever meet. I mean, no judgment. And for years I would say, you know what, if I, if I'm going to stop drinking for good, then I have to call her and tell her because I know if I tell her, there's no way I will ever drink again. I don't know why I had that in my mind, but for years, that's what I said. And I picked up the phone to call her so many times because I would, I mean, I would stop for like 30 days or like a week and I'd be like, okay, I got to call. I'm going to call her and tell her now. And then I never would. And when I finally stopped every Sunday night, we would have, we have my husband's parents up. I mean, we used to, we, we don't obviously right now, we would have his parents up and um, my sister-in-law and her husband up for, for Sunday dinner. And it was, uh, I think I stopped on a Sunday and it was that next Sunday and we were doing the dishes together. And I looked at her and I said, I stopped drinking. And the minute it came out of my mouth, it was like, I mean, people have these like God moments or like, I, I don't know what they call them, like a moment of surrender or like something or, and it was like this just, I, it gives me goosebumps to this day to remember that moment because it was just like a weight lifted off my shoulders. And she looked at me, she gave me a hug and she said, Margaret, it's going to be hard. And I started crying and I'm like, I know, but I knew at that moment. And I mean, thank God. I, I feel so blessed that I literally after that moment, I have not felt it's been hard. I've had hard moments, but I've never felt truly tri- like not triggered, but I've never had a, a moment where I've really wanted to, to drink after that. Really? And I mean, wow. like I said, I've had moments that have been very difficult, but I've never, ever thought of, of having a drink again. And I, I, I tell her it's because she took it out of me. Like she, there was something that I had in my mind that, she took that desire literally just out of my body. 
Wow. And my That's first amazing. year anniversary, I, I gave her a card because I was like, you know, she needs to know how, how big this was for me that she, she was there and held space for me. And she was the person I knew who could do it for me. So I gave her flowers and a card and I just, every anniversary, I remind her, you know, that, that she's a big part of it. I believe we do it for ourselves, but I do think that we need people in our lives that are going to be there to help and support us. And if Aww. we do, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of close girlfriends that were instrumental in my first few months of just, just accepting it, you know, and, yeah. and not, not giving me any grief about it. And, and just like, Hey, you're doing this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they were my, they're my normie friends, my wine drinking friends, you know, that, that, um, but they, they love me and they want me to be well. And, um, I'm so grateful for them. And it is a really special thing when you share it with someone. I want to circle back to what you were talking about in college as when you went to a 12 step meeting, uh, in relation to the DUI that you got. And you, yeah. you said you look back now and you know that, you know, it probably wasn't the right meeting. And uh, this is something that I just didn't realize. And I, you know, I, when I imagined the scary meeting that I was, there was no way I was going to go to a meeting because I was picturing a certain scary dynamic in my head. And it was basically that I was picturing a bunch of old guys that were going to tell me, get Mm -hmm. out of here. You're not bad enough. But when you say you weren't in the right meeting, this is so important. So I know this now, I didn't know this then. There's a bunch of different (laughs) meetings (laughs) and they're all, you know, of the same program, the same 12 steps, but it really, the combination of who's in the room so changes the vibe of the meeting. And so I've since heard people say to someone who's like, oh, I went, it was not good. It was not for me. They'll say, try another meeting because they're all so different. I didn't know that then. And and you didn't know that. No, I had no idea. Yeah. No, I agree. do you go to meetings now at all or do you stick to, I know, I know we both have been to She Recovers stuff. Do you stick to that or what's, what's your connection and your uh, support look like now? Yeah, I don't follow a 12 step program. I, I do think that at some point though, it might be helpful to work the steps. Um, I know I, I have a workbook, the woman's way, I forget what it's called. The woman's, the woman's um, way through the 12 steps. Yes, Stephanie I do. Clinton. Yeah. Yeah, I do have that. And I, I do think at some point it might be helpful just because I think I think it would be helpful literally for anyone, even people who don't have, you know, an issue with with alcohol. But I think it just provides you with more insight. And I mean, that's where I'm at now in my life where I just want to learn more about myself and grow, grow as a person, you know, so I do think at some point that would be helpful to do. But I don't I don't attend um, 12 step meetings. My my recovery is based in. Yeah the connections I have and she recovers um, running for me is a big part of my sobriety and my recovery um, connecting with nature. That is my morning meditation. My, my running has really changed actually now, now that I'm in recovery, it used to be, no, I wouldn't say a punishment, but it was like a way to prove that I didn't have a problem, I think maybe, or a way to prove myself, you know, that I, and now it's, it's um, I've coined a term. It's called intuitive running. It's, I like to, to use that term because I don't wear a watch. I don't time myself. I go and I just listen to my body. And if it feels good, then I keep going. And if it doesn't, you know, I, I stop. Um, but th- those that 
running, she recovers. Um, yeah, connection is huge. Those are my main, my main um, recovery tools. Do you listen to music when you run, or do you listen to podcasts or books, or what's in your what's in your ears? Yeah, I listen to I listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> I did and let me tell you that, I, I get <laughs> Jean, I'll tell you the truth. I get really mad at you on I think they come you you some you usually post them on Mondays, but I get them on Tuesdays because I run early in the morning. And if on Tuesday morning I don't see a new episode, I really get pissed at you. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> that's like I know, my email. Oh <laughs> I don't email <laughs> you, but I'm like, come on, I was expecting to like have a new episode to listen to on my Tuesday run. Uh, but yeah, no, I listen to podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. Um, I listen to music. Yeah, I, I have something in my ears. Every once in a while, I won't if it's like, you know, particularly beautiful day and it's quiet outside. But I, I sometimes need that extra motivation of something in my ears, to be honest. So you'll be able to listen to this interview on your next run. Ah! Mm. I don't think I'll <laughs> listen to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you do. I hope you do because it's it's pretty amazing actually to uh, listen back to our own stories. I was just recently interviewed on a couple of different podcasts because I'm promoting a book that I'm releasing soon, and I'll I'll blurb that at the beginning <laughs> of the show. I won't give myself another commercial here, but I you know I listened back to them just to because it's nerve wracking. Like I was yeah. sweating so bad by the end of it. And I'm, I do this every week, but when I had to tell my own story, it was nerve wracking, but it's kind of cool. You listen back and you're like, Oh, I didn't know I said that. Or, yeah, oh, I wish I'd like said that. that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a feeling of, of, of hearing yourself differently and hearing your story with the same compassion that you listen to others. We don't often give ourselves that time and that compassion. So yeah, it's kind of, I really, I do recommend that you listen to your own interview. And if there's any listeners who are past guests of the show, who've been too scared to listen to their own. And I know there's a couple of you who say that uh, you should really try it because yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty neat experience. Well, it did make me think as I was going through and like, just like I said, I'd never told my story, my story, like from beginning to end before. And when I was thinking about it, I did like think, oh, I wish I could, you know, what would I do to like 16 year old Margaret, like remembering like who I was back then. And that, you know, 20 year old in college that was so unprepared, you know, and I just wish I could go back and give her a hug, you know, and be like, you know what, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Because you don't think of your, your, I don't think of myself often in that way, like as a 16 year old or, you know, that awkward 12 year old with that awful haircut, you know, or that 40 year old who, you know, had your, her mom die and yeah, her husband's sick. It's like, you know, I can look back now in hindsight and clarity and be like, you know, really empathetic towards that person. Whereas maybe, you know, when I was going through it, I just... I thought I was a total mess up, you know. Aw, poor little bean. I guess you're <laughs> both of us. I, I mean, we're both tall and slim, and I just felt like I stuck out like such a th- sore thumb. Ooh. Oh <laughs> yeah, through, yeah. Your school pants were too short. My feet were too oh. big. <laughs> I, I didn't have yeah. I didn't have the right 
pair of Levi's that all the other cool kids were wearing. Oh, yeah, they didn't fit me. And all of my <laughs> sister cut my hair too. And we still, you know, cry about it. Day. It was not good. So, oh. all the love that we need. Hey, yeah. before I let you go, tell me how are you going to celebrate your birthday and your thousand day milestone? Yeah, so uh, I went for an early morning run this morning, which was great. I worked in my yard all day today with my son, getting ready for to have my daughter's wedding here next month um, because her original venue got, got canceled. So we're hosting it in our own backyard and they are going to cook me, either cook me or, or order, order out a nice Italian meal. And then we are going to play this game if you don't have it. Jean, you need to go get it. It's called Catan. And my two best Christmas presents I've ever gotten were when I was 10 years old, I got a Barbie dream house. And two years ago, <laughs> yeah, I, I played with it until I was 16, which yeah tells you something about me. Um, but my son two years ago got me this game Catan. And at the time I'm like, really? Like this, you got me this stupid game. And I'm, it's, it's the best game ever. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with it. My daughter says I'm obsessed with it because I'm really good at it, which I am. Um, but I love it. So we're going to play that tonight. And then we might, we're, um, we uh, are watching uh, an old episodes of the bachelorette. So we'll probably binge watch one of those tonight too. And I might fall asleep in the middle of it, but the great thing is like, I used to watch uh, survivor, you know, I'm a big survivor fan I've watched every single one, but during those drinking years, I would wake up the next day and not remember who got voted out. So I'd secretly have to rewatch it before like my kids got home. So I wouldn't like, they wouldn't realize that I didn't remember. Uh, and so I might not remember tomorrow morning, but it's because I actually fell asleep and not because I was, you know, had too much to drink. <laughs> well, that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful evening. And I'm so happy for you. You just, you just sound so good. I'm just so happy for you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you shared this time with me and with the listeners of this show, because this is, this is what it's all about. This is the whole deal. Totally. This joy and, and connection and freedom. I hear it all in you. And I'm so happy for you, Margaret. Thank you so much for being here today. Listeners, if you want to respond to Margaret, uh, just shoot an email to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will make sure Margaret gets your message and then she can write back to you. And I guess that's everything for this week. And I will be back next week. I won't let Margaret or anyone else down. <laughs> I did take the last week off and uh, now I know not to do that anymore. <laughs> So that's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on.
Just want to be free from the power. Oh, you just head on. 